Claire McDonald, and this is a podcast for PAJ, a journal of performance and art. And I'm talking with Sarah Parry about curating the artist's voice. And the context for this is a piece I wrote about a book called Speaking of Art, Four Decades of Art in Conversation. And that's a piece about UK-based audio arts, a long-running artist-sound project started by Bill Furlong and Barry Barker in 1973. And it's now a huge archive of artists' recordings and interviews housed at the Tate Gallery in London. It's a project which, as the curators have put it, is now on pause after 30-plus years of recording. And it was a very significant arts project in the UK. Bill Furlong himself, its long-term curator, is a sound artist of some renown. And he developed it as an artist-to-artist project, really a kind of sound sculptural project, very much based around the sorts of artists' things that were happening in the 1970s around cassette magazines with male art and collaborative practice. And for myself and Sarah, it's also related to an interest in the recorded voice, in radio, in sound. And as a project, it has an important part as part of the history of the oral history of the arts internationally. So it raises a lot of questions for us and ideas about recording as publishing, about communities of listening and participation, about the institutions of recording and about how things have now changed and developed in sound and sound art and in oral history. And very importantly, about how artists speak about themselves, if you like. I was also thinking today that it's in a way, it's what I call, and Sarah and I were talking about, about history of the voice, um, which is the name of a, of a wonderful book by Edward Kamau Braithwaite on poetry and the voice in the Caribbean. So when I was asked to do this podcast, I immediately thought of inviting Sarah, whose work on the history and poetics of sound and voice recording, I got to know when I was editor of a journal called Performance Research, and several pieces for that journal were written by Sarah. And afterwards, we realized that we share a great many artistic and cultural interests, partly in sound, sound recording, and in art, in modernism, in feminism, in walking, and in ecology, and in the natural world, some of which we'll come back to later. So I want to kind of bring Sarah in now and say hi, Sarah. And uh, Sarah, how is the spring out there in Canada? Actually, in Vancouver, we, we don't have spring. It's It's been a very uh, rainy and dark spring, <laughs> but we have all the cherry blossoms out all the same. So it's lovely that way. Well, I should tell you that um, to our listeners that we're on different continents for this conversation. Sarah is way, way to the west of me out in Vancouver. And I'm in York in the north of England where I live. And I'm at the end of my day while hers is just beginning. And it's been a very beautiful day here. I've been out in my garden and the garden is full of birds with robins and dunnocks, blackbird pear and two gold crests who flew into my garden today. And we were talking earlier on about the way in which in Britain, certainly, and I think, again, we'll come back to this, that uh, sound recording has a very strong connection to birdsong. Uh, the British Institute for Recorded Sound was founded by someone called Patrick Saul after the war, who was a recordist or who had a great interest in birdsong. And it was that archive of sound, along with the artist's voice and the recordings of great musicians, that began and the sound archive at the British Library and there are lots of crossovers between artists and birds. I was thinking earlier on about um, Beatrice Harrison who went out with her cello in the 1920s and played with birds and that's um, I found that in the, that's in a book by David Rothenberg called Why Birds Sing that's right but anyway today we're going to talk about the artist's voice and in a great kind of formalist way 
we're definitely not going to talk about content here. Um, in fact, we may say nothing about what's said in these artists' interviews. But what we're going to focus on instead is the project as a sound project, as part of the history of recording. The reason for that is because this project, Audio Arts, is like certain other projects, is foregrounds the idea of the medium. Uh, it's very much using sound sculpturally, or at least that's what its intention was curatorially, to create a kind of network of artists' voices. And of course, that, in a way, that's very fashionable now, but it was very groundbreaking in the 1970s. And so I thought we might begin the conversation by talking about the 1970s and how artists' voice projects developed around new kinds of technologies. And I thought, Sarah, I'd like to bring you in by, first of all, talking about the cassette tape itself. And for us, you know, speculate yeah. a little bit around the cassette and the relationship between cassette and vinyl. True. So what, what happens during this period is you have how what artists are using uh, the cassette tape for, uh, which is to communicate, uh, you know, between them and to sort of circulate readings of their work or, or conversations or thoughts or journals. And this becomes something that people are doing. In, we were talking about mail art earlier, but people are doing it in the context of a kind of a postal communication that's oral. So there's a lot of that, uh, that going on just in terms of the cassette tape. It changes to uh, public art events because now you don't need a reel-to-reel recorder. You don't need a, you know, a formal uh, person who's trained in doing that you can just set up a tape deck on a table and record these things so uh, that it changes very much in terms of the archiving of a public uh, art event uh, in which there was a talk of some kind and I think too with male art uh, just what is going on between artists uh, the conversations that are enabled by this new technology you know the Dolby no his tape uh, the yeah. transistorized uh, mm -hmm the lightweight uh, but good quality recorder, uh, you know, it has an enormous impact on the sort of dissemination of the spoken word uh, among communities of artists, but also in terms of what we were calling um, a public, you know, what is the cassette for the, and I know in uh, spoken word for poetry, what happens is there is a very small publishing houses that begin, uh, you know, that can publish on a very small scale, uh, but it becomes possible to disseminate avant-garde readings to a wider public public that is dispersed. So all of that is sort of what is going on, I would say, in the 70s, where we have a switch from previously the spoken word had been published on, on vinyl, yeah. and then artists had been circulating sort of the reel-to-reel -reel tapes and, and other media, you know, as, a, as almost like a, a supplement to letter, if you it's will. Almost as if, it's almost as if the, the medium itself has a kind of poetics, doesn't it? I mean, as you're talking, it makes me think, for instance, of, you know, the very famous early example is William Burroughs. I think it's 1959 that he and Brian Geisen did the cut-ups on cassette. And uh, they actually used cassette tape itself to, to cut into and to, uh, and to create collage, to create sound collage. Oh, Claire, I, don't, I think that was real to real. It's interesting, actually, just as an anecdote, because in the British Library, I've actually seen Steve Cleary, who's the um, sound curator there, I've seen great piles of Burroughs cassette tapes with his writing on them. Oh. He, he left oh. a lot. In fact, um, as somebody who's really been very important in the kind of history of um, the collecting of sound and artist sound in Britain is um, from Psychic TV, Genesis P. Orridge, who's been a brilliant curator, kept a huge amount of sound ephemera, and I think he actually gave a lot of that to the British Library. So you're probably right. I mean, they, the, the cut-ups may not have been on cassette. That's probably a sort of fantasy of mine, really. I guess oh. the 1950s artists were using reel-to-reel. 
But they were using it in the context of they were appropriating um, what was being used as sort of a one-way technology. So basically, you were having the medium of recording was reel-to-reel tape, and then it was transcribed onto vinyl disc, which was one way. And so they were appropriating, I think, tape, you know, if we think about media shift and and trying to uh, introduce an art practice into what was really a kind of hegemonic one-way form at that point. So so the cut-up of the discourse was really interesting and then that was essential to sort of sound art and art practice with with the cassette tape though I don't think it was although it was used as an art form between individuals it has this history of being used as a way to communicate with you know if I want if I had written a poem I might want to mail you a a cassette so you could hear how I was performing it Uh, and then you have that sort of evolution into male art and people using cassette tapes in that context we were talking yesterday about just how democratic tape was because it's very cheap, uh, it's low cost, uh, anyone can, uh, you know, participate in, in recording an event. It's not, to me, used in the same way as um, as an art form, but it, it's more akin to uh, a letter in in some yes. some way. And then that this project, it seems to me, develops, even though there's a whole history of uh, the art talk and the interview, uh, you know, that goes back decades to the origins of sound recordings. It's sort of building on that spoken word genre, but in the moment of the cassette tape and, and just sort of being able to put a cassette... A record an event and then we're looking back where we have these archive of sound documents that come out of that moment. I think in a way part of its poetics is as you say that is and I can actually um, in my mind's eye I can see Bill Furlong himself there's a lot of pictures of Bill Furlong making recordings a a sort of further document a meta document if you like and he's always sitting there with a tape recorder and I think he didn't record Mm -hmm. them actually it's interesting I'm I'm not sure whether he recorded them onto cassette or whether he recorded them onto reel to reel and they were then transferred to cassette as you say as a form of letter. As a f- yes, that's true. I'm sorry, you are correct in this. It's just that uh, the technology to record these events is so lightweight. Yes. So the cassette, it can be sent in the post. It can be exchanged. It's almost like a kind of postcard, isn't it? Part of the poetics of it, certainly when I think about it in the UK, and actually as I think about it in the UK, I think this is very American influenced. I think that it was informed by people working in collaborative projects. People like George Brecht, from Fluxus who came to the UK in 65 and taught and was a very, very influential kind of artist. But the poetics is the poetics of collaborative art practice. And I think that that's Mm. really where audio arts begins, that Bill Furlong's project, when he talks about himself as a kind of curator, that he sees a kind of network of exchange of artists talking about art and talking about themselves and also of artists as interviewers. Like when you're talking about the hegemonic nature of sound recording, this is about artists going out and interviewing other artists and then that being exchanged. It is a sort of democratization, if you like, of the archive, of I guess of the sound archive, isn't it? And it seems to me that we're talking about two different genres. We're talking about a public genre in which you have the art talk or the interview, the history of that. And then we're talking about a private genre in which artists are doing exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. You read their correspondence. They they refer often to sending each other tapes. Just, you know, record themselves talking about what their art practices and so sending it like a postcard or a letter. And so with this project, then you get a kind of uh, a creating of a a, a listening public, uh, Mm. a coming together of those two things. 
which and is really that listening public is. I mean, do you have any ideas about that? Because the public for a kind of cassette magazine must have been tiny. Yes, I'm not as familiar with this project as North American projects, mm. but typically these were uh, small. I know there were sound magazines, even in the 1950s and the 1960s, there were attempts to, do, to produce sound magazines as supplements to regular magazines. So again, that has a history, but it seems to me what, what happens here is there's a, an artistic community, which is sort of equivalent to some of the early uh, poetry recordings where I know in Canada there was a small, and I've forgotten the name, but there was a small co company that would just create cassettes of readings of poets and then mail them to other poets. Yeah. So there's a history of that with cassette culture because it's very inexpensive and you can, you can do that. It's interesting because I know, I mean, why I remember one of the pieces that you wrote for us in performance research was about something that takes place slightly before that, but it was very groundbreaking, was, was Cadman Records. But I think for you, that, that's got a very different kind of, again, poetics, a very different kind of feel to it, because that was all on vinyl, wasn't it? It was on vinyl, and what was beautiful and interesting about that was that was really, we can think about that in the context of uh, Cold War cultural politics, we can think about that in terms of the adult education movement, that was an attempt to bring poetry right into the living rooms of the average person in, in America. And I know that uh, those were published only in, in 500, uh, 500 at a time. Uh, and then some of them, of course, sold, you know, millions, uh, like the Dylan Thomas records. But many of them did not. You know, many of them had very small publics. Although artists and poets did listen to those, I think that the audience that was imagined for those was really to bring uh, people to modern poetry and to take poetry and the spoken word into the homes of the average person. The project that you're describing describing uh, seems to be related to uh, the interview as genre or the talk as genre and the publics that are uh, associated with that which are artists and poets and very small sort of listening publics mm -hmm. but then there's that second moment that we were talking about it when it becomes part of an archive as it did when it became part of the Tate and then you know that, ha that has a much wider public and it becomes part of art history as well as earlier, I guess, uh, you know, being part of a discussion among artists about art practice. So, I mean, so that's fascinating, isn't it? Because you, I mean, the beginning of the projects and the beginning of projects like that, I don't think that, uh, first of all, technology hadn't advanced in quite the way it has now, that, we, that artists would have thought that one of the kind of major archives that would be consulted at the beginning of the 21st century would be these sound archives or would be things that were considered more ephemeral, for instance, than print at the time. Mm. But, but now we think that these are, as you say, they've become part of the archive of art history. Mm -hmm. I love that idea too of, of things that are ephemeral or seem to be ephemeral because we had that sort of uh, media shift where we were shifting after the war from a print public uh, to a kind of um, a post-print public and so there was a sort of perception that these things were ephemeral but in fact they're actually quite important in the dissemination of art and the dissemination of ideas and so now as we look back from the perspective of the digital era we're sort of recovering um, these documents that were, were part of the sort of analog era archive, which has since differentiated in terms of the media, you know, that's it's separated into media of repro image reproduction, media of sound reproduction. And this is sort of, of part of that history, I think. 
I mean, there's a couple of things I want to kind of pick up on there. One of them is just to go back a little bit to your distinction between the interview and the talk. I'd love to hear you say something a bit more about that, because in terms of genre, they're slightly different, aren't they? They are different. The interview with the artist, I think of as, as a Cold War genre, because it was part of the idea of popularizing art and making art more accessible to people who were not necessarily artists, so that you could read about it, you could hear about it on television or the radio. And it has that uh, you know history, if we think about what was happening in the 50s, things like the Paris Review, all those um, interviews that were being transcribed. Yeah. <laughs> And then it becomes a sort of postmodern genre, how Warhol was working with the genre of the interview, interview magazine, for example. So then we have an art practice in a way that engages with the genre of the interview. And the artist talk is something that has been around for a longer time, it has a different kind of uh, history. If we think about a uh, reading series where, where the artist or the poet talks about his or her art practice, but they are in fact separate genres. But uh, both of them are reflected in the sound recording archive uh, during different historical periods. It really makes me think, actually. I mean, the artist's talk is a very interesting thing. And I, I wrote a little bit when I was writing in the original piece that uh, generated what we're discussing now. I wrote about the way that artists... Uh, actually kind of what artists talk about and the way that artists talk about themselves is really interesting. Artists, in a sense, are quite sophisticated in their approach to sound often. Uh, there's a kind of rhetorical self-staging. And, and I think that, of course, that's really much more profound now that we have YouTube and everybody's kind of staging themselves. But it's a really important part, and I guess it has been for a long time now, since probably since sound recording, of the way in which artists create a sense of identity, the artists talk. Absolutely. And these are, these are genres as well. Uh, I liked the piece that was done by Laurie Anderson for this project, where she was really talking about the stylization of the voice. She was talking at one point about corporate voice. So, uh, and that seems like it doesn't relate, but if you were looking at how she was being self-reflexive about what she was doing, it was really interesting in terms of uh, both of these are particular genres that people participate in, in terms of their self-representation, in terms of the role of the artist. These are genres. Of course, you're right. And it's actually interesting you bring up the example of Laurie Anderson because she's an artist who's been so attuned to the voice and, and to the stylization of the voice and to the relationship between the voice and technology. But it also brings up something we haven't really discussed at all yet, which is gender and the voice and how it is that women represent themselves in sound. And I think of that partly because last night, purely by chance, actually, I was watching um, videos by the poet Eileen Miles on YouTube. And it's a wonderful kind of combination of a kind of Patti Smith plus, I don't know, it's a wonderful kind of self-staging in the way in which she works and these videos on YouTube. And thinking about that whole way in which one as a woman has to engage with the sound of one's voice in a very particular way. All sorts of things are inflected there in that genre, class, nationality, gender, all sorts of things that are, are really very important and are really only present when you hear the kind of grain of the voice rather than, for instance, in transcription, do you think? 
Yes, absolutely. You hear the person performing their identity. So there's a sort of social identity. And then overlaid on that, of course, is the art practice. So it's the dialectic. Uh, and then uh, there's this third element, which is the spoken word genre, the hegemonic element of it. And so you really have these three different strands when you're listening to any uh, performance, particularly when we're talking about a poetic performance or an artistic performance of any kind, uh, where you really have to attend to all of those three three things and see, for example, in the British tradition, many people choose or to use receive pronunciation in English as a form of public speech. Uh, but they might make a different choice in an art event directed for peers, and that, that would be shaped perhaps uh, by the social context or the institutional context. So the, the person's performance of a voice will vary from context to context, from audience to audience. I think that's also very interesting. And it's not something that's absolutely foregrounded in the audio arts project, but it's clearly something that artists work with all the time. And when we think about this, there's the art practice part of this project, there's the content part. But also when we're really thinking about um, sound art projects as part of the kind of history of the voice, then I think we have to, as you say, attend to that. And I know that you're very interested in this idea about genres and discourses. And anecdotally, it reminds me that... Britain is a very different kind of experience of the history of the voice and the institutions and genres to the United States. And I think it's interesting, as we're talking about this, that neither of us is American. And we come from Canada and Britain, which have very different kinds of cultures and histories of sound recording to the United States, for instance. And I wondered if that's something we might kind of turn to, because you might speculate, really, on the ways in which sound recording and the ways in which artists and others engage in it is very profoundly different in the United States. And when I went to live in the US, I, I really felt that. And I wonder what you feel about that. The sound cultures and the voice cultures of all three countries are completely different. Uh, and that has to do with the institutions that produce voice and produce sound. And so the radio cultures in particular are very important in the publics that they create. So, uh, you know, the BBC history has a, the status model of broadcasting. The kind of programming produced by the BBC is very different, I think, than the voice culture and the sound culture of the U.S. We've talked a lot about uh, how... You know, you have the smaller publics of artists, you have the university radio stations, you have the public performance spaces in the U.S. So it's much more heterogeneous, I think, in terms of the artist's engagement with the hegemonic discourses, the oral discourses. It's, it is a different sound culture and voice culture in the U.S. than it is in Britain. But at the same time, I think British people and Canadian people are very orally literate because of the role of radio in creating publics and in Canada creating the state literate so that we are very orally attuned people. We are, and it's, I think of that in Britain, you're, you're absolutely right, that radio is an incredibly important part of creating a sense of national identity and continuous national debate and discourse, certainly in Britain. And that's very, very different, and, and it's very interesting, because when I came to the United States, I was kind of blown away by the huge, the heterogeneity of sound, the enormously kind of different ways in which sound is recorded and produced, that you can have things that are produced for very small publics, for instance, um, and you have masses of very interesting sound archives. Lots of things that we don't have in a culture 
like this, where things are always kind of moving towards the centre. I mean, the kinds of things that are still part of national debate and discourse in Britain are really extremely nuanced ideas about the voice. Um, the way in which we receive, as you say, the received pronunciation, the way in which different dialects are perceived in Britain. It makes me think of, uh, again, back to Kamal Braithwaite and his history of the voice. One of the things he talks about there is British cricket commentary specifically and saying that in the Caribbean, you know, very much part of the empire at one point, they received the British voice all the time as received pronunciation. But it was through cricket commentary and the voice of the great cricket commentator John Arlott, who had a very southern Hampshire voice, that they began to realise there were very, very different voices within the British Isles. And it began to stimulate the notion that they had a very different kind of voice, which they could use in poetry. And until I read that, I hadn't really thought about how much RP was disseminated across the world as the voice of Britain and just how, how hegemonic that's been. This has a lot to do also with when we talked in a techno-material sense of how the voice is produced and reproduced. To switch from talking, you know, about what I would call primary voice culture to secondary or mediated voice culture, I can give you an example um, just in terms of how they were recording report poetry in the very beginning of the 1950s. The sound of the spoken word industry was very much in influenced by radio and that intimate, up-close sort of simulation of an intimate uh, conversation. The Cadman sound was about a public art event, so you'd have the voice resonating in a hall. You'd have the Folkway sound, which was really influenced by Mo Ash's idea that you should always be aware of the filter of the technology. So he, he makes you attend to that. You can't identify, you imagine yourself as speaking, you know, being physically proximate to the poet because you're always having to deal with the, the sound of the technology. So these are all choices as well, in, in addition to the disposition of the voice that condition that kind of experience. I was also thinking there, you've spoken to me about the way in which in Canada, there was a real attention in, in public radio to the avant-garde. And I've listened to Glenn Gould's recordings, both the recording he made, is it called The Idea of North, the recording? Yes, it is. And also his essays, which are actually, you know, very experimental essays on things like Petula Clark and, and all kinds of other things. And I wonder how that takes place within what you've described as a rather statist culture, because to me, that feels as if... Um, uh, the history of experiment was very much present in the development of Canadian radio. It was indeed. In fact, at one point, many of the Folkways records came from the CBC archives because we had a, a state broadcaster that was funding avant-garde art. And I don't know as much about the CBC history and why that was, but I know that our sort of national identity was formed by this oral space because we're so dispersed. We're spread on a narrow, narrow band and our entire identity was very much tied in with radio um, during the 50s and the 60s. And I know recordings by John Cage, many avant-garde American artists were being disseminated up here on, on uh, national uh, radio very early on. And I, for some reason, because of the importance of radio, we have a long history of avant-garde uh, sound art here. And Armory Schaefer in particular is, is someone that I would say was very Canadian and his work on soundscapes and ecology. But on, on another level, I think that these things are sort of transnational. There are always people overhearing uh, and 
and it circulates on a kind of global level. What is interesting to me about the American experience, though, has always been the local, the locality of the listening publics, you know, the Berkeley, uh, the Pacifica radio, or the very small university stations, uh, the New York radio stations. And the listening publics. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. And now, of course, that they become so transnational because they're archived uh, on the web. And so now one's able to to really listen to Down Home Radio, to Harriet, to Chenko, uh, to all the kinds of, you know, to, there's an archive of things from the 1940s. And you're so right. The American locale, the sort of sense that, um, and again, radio, so radio connects the country in the United States in a very different way. And I never feel I've quite got a grip on that. It, it always is to me hugely various, very heterogeneous, and yet absolutely fascinating the way in which radio, almost like railway culture in the United States, has this traversing, kind of traveling quality of picking up voices over this vast continent. Uh, and, and you still have that. Um, I mean, I'm thinking of projects like Soundprint in the United States, and very very experimental. But then I, when I went to Australia, I became interested in the same thing there. You've got very similarly, you have very experimental projects. They have a project in Australia called The Pool, where anybody can go in and pull out sound work that they want to use in collage. And they've got, um, they have a program called The Night Air, which has it's a very experimental program once a week, which again really works on sort of collage, bricolage, all of those techniques that artists began to work with in early tape. It's, it's fascinating, and I don't think we have anything quite like that in the UK. I know the sound recording history, but I don't know the publics. We're really talking about oral publics here and the degree to which a project is, is a publishing project, whether it's a, by radio or television or cassette or whether it's a kind of interactive discussion that can occurs with people uh, changing the medium and appropriating the medium. So these are the kinds of things that arise if you are really studying the history of sound and the dissemination of sound and sound and voice cultures. I think to go move to there, I want to kind of go back a little way as well to when I was talking earlier about birdsong and uh, thinking about the kind of <laughs> a quick switch to the ecologies of sound as well. I mean, we were just thinking about the ways in which sound recording and ethnography are connected. There's a lot of contemporary work on recording soundscapes, but um, you've intimated that that was very much part of creating the Canadian identity. And I think you were telling me that, that some of the early recording equipment itself uh, and recording projects were really generated in order to record dying languages, for instance, that in that we might say that that's part of a whole kind of unconscious about the way in which sound recording um, we, can't, we can't call it the poetics. What is it, Sarah? It's something else. Something, there are something two else. different ways that we can think about this. And the project that we've been talking about is part of that. Do we want to use Michael North's term and talk about the public unconscious of publishing? Or do we want to use Jameson's term and talk about the political unconscious of publishing? Uh, that's sort of open to debate. But when we think about sound recording history, as you and I have been talking about, the very earliest recordings of birdsong, it's part of the unconscious of sound sound recording and it plays out for decades from the very beginning until the present because that's the way the technology was used in the very earliest times. Similarly when we have the the second generation phonograph, the um, Bell Tainter phonograph, the US government adopted it for the purposes of transcription in the office but also to archive Indian uh, Native American languages. 
And now we have that whole kind of unconscious. It was preserved in the Folkways archive, the disposition of the medium. And it's very interesting uh, in terms of resisting the hegemony of print and making room for minority voices, always in the sound recording history that plays out in American history to the present. And also when we're talking about the genres of the artists speaking uh, to other artists, but also to a wider public, the whole history of the adult education movement, the whole history of Cold War politics and speaking to the common man. So when we look at a genre now from the present, there's always a history and it's part of the unconscious uh, of the medium of sound recording. Oh, that's wonderful. I think we have to do a project together, Sarah, on sound recording. <laughs> I think we have to go on a long walk somewhere, actually. And that's really fascinating. I think we're probably going to have to wrap up rather soon. Before we do that, and I really want to move a little bit into um, where we are now, but I want to go right back for a moment and just ask you how you first became interested in the poetics of sound and sound recording. I was taking a course in modernism, and I had actually been trained at doing district course analysis and linguistics, and this was my first passion, but I couldn't get into a graduate course, and so it was on material modernism, and I said, material modernism, uh, let's look at this Cadman recording of modernist poets, and I brought it in, and the class went over by two hours, because <laughs> we, we, start, we listened to every single one, and we had a rich dialogue, and I remember actually writing to, I think it was Richard Swig in the UK, and then there was just such an interest in this. Immediately, I was an MA student. There was just an immediate interest. What are you doing with this material? And I had grown up. My mother uh, was a spoken word artist. I had grown up listening to people read aloud. So it was very familiar to me. So that was the origins of my interest in this. Well, that's actually really interesting. We've certainly never spoken about this because my own, my own interest in sound crosses over with yours to a certain extent. First of all, my own background is my father's Scots and my mother's English. I spent my childhood in England and my teens in Scotland. So I became very bilingual and very interested in different dialects and different kinds of Englishes, what I would now call Englishes. But then at university, I immediately switched to linguistics. I did an English course, but I immediately became part of English. So I did discourse analysis, phonetics, philology. And then what I did was dialectology because I was at university in Leeds and Leeds had the great dialectologists there, Harold Orton and the person I was taught by Stanley Ellis. And we all went away and we did a dialect survey. And there is a huge dialect archive at Leeds as well. So for me, it really started with language. And then I took all of that into my own performance practice. So yeah, that's really fascinating. My methodologies, in a sense, the methodology I learned and the kind of intellectual framework that I got from linguistics was absolutely incredible at the time. Brilliant. It gives us the ability to really attend to the voice. Yes. I think that it's that training where you can hear those markers of class, of gender, of a local identity, of a of a national voice culture. You can attend to the, what I call the techno material, but it actually is that training in language that enables us to do that. It is. We had to actually write everything down in phonetic transcription when yeah. I was a student. And that's brilliant. Well, look, the final thing I really want to just mention is I kind of want to just talk to you or just to tell you, and, and I'd love you to tell me about, I was thinking about where has some of this culture gone now? Because I think that we live in a very, very interesting moment for sound recording and for the voice. And for many of the reasons that you've talked about, about the different kinds of uh, making space for minority voices is one. And also, I think creating sound projects that even if they're not 
inclusive of artists are driven by the methods that artists themselves developed. So I think that's very much part of sound culture. A couple of projects that I've been really interested in lately are, one is, and in fact, there's um, an interviewer in the audio arts book called Claudia Wegener, who does the interview with William Kentridge. But she's been doing a project with, I think, a social activist and academic called Molefi Mafareka Mblovu, and it's called Durban Sings, and it's very, it's on the web, and it's a kind of participatory sound project in Africa. I mean, that's a whole other subject, the relationship of voice and radio in Africa and, and artist activism. And the other project, actually African-related, that I find really interesting in Britain now is uh, there's a big Somali community in Britain. And the Somalis have a very, very big interest in oral poetry. And they very much brought that to Britain. And one of the projects that really seems to be coming up right now and maybe up for funding for a big project uh, is a project with young Somali poets in Cardiff. And Cardiff as a, as a port on the west coast of Britain, which um, has always been multicultural in the last couple of hundred years, has had a Somali sea, sea community for many years. And now these young poets are creating new art projects which are influenced by all kinds of, as you say, would say genres and discourses. And I think some of these are some very, very exciting kinds of new new projects that are coming up. Are there any that you think of? I think this is really interesting in terms of the differences between modern sound and postmodern sound or postmodern voice cultures, postcolonial voice cultures. Yeah. So we're really tracking a shift there. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I'm quite interested in, in, in taking voice, uh, spoken words seriously in terms of understanding different spoken word genres, understanding voice practice. So my interest right now is understanding those within formalist frameworks mm -hmm. because people have always thought of uh, voice as being something that can't be talked about in that way. But if we think about the importance of spoken word culture in our culture, I think it's time to think about the poetics of voice practice seriously. I think that's wonderful. It actually takes me back and I'd like to end with the great uh, language poet Charles Bernstein who always talks about the new formalism and has actually been incredibly encouraging in bringing us back to attending to that. I want to really thank you, Sarah. That was a wonderful discussion and I hope it's the first of many. It's really quite extraordinary to be able to talk in this way across continents. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. It's been a delight. This has been an MIT Press Journals podcast. For more information about PAJ or any of our publications, please visit our website at www.mitpressjournals.org.